Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to another episode of Voices Behind the Game. I'm Jeremy Roberts, and I'm thrilled that you're with us. Thanks for joining us as my dad and I, Dan Roberts, got to sit down and talk with Craig Bowlerjack, better known as Bowler, here to Jazz Nation in Utah. And Bowler is a, a consummate professional. He dates back in a great way to 1985, the same year that Carl Malone was drafted by the Utah Jazz. Craig Bowlerjack also made his entrance into the Utah market, starting with KSL. Craig eventually went on to join CBS and has done many nationally televised NFL games, March Madness, and now is the longtime TV lead for Utah Jazz broadcasts. He's beloved by Jazz fans. He is part of the Utah Jazz and just an absolutely outstanding guy. So sit back, pull up a chair, or turn up your radio, and enjoy our conversation with Craig Bullerjack. Back to like kind of feeling weird. Um, I mean that you briefly mentioned it when you went to OKC. I mean that's that's got to be up there in the in the world of being of surreal. Well, for all in in my entire career. And thanks for having me on too, by, by the way, guys. Um, yeah, I, I've been through a lot of interesting situations like the um, L.A. riots and uh, the bomb that went off in Atlanta during the Olympics in 96. And this one uh, was about uh, the highest of levels that I ever want to, you know, be involved in. It was... Uh, um, it was one of those nights where you knew something wasn't right. And, you know, you go on that sixth sense that all of us have. And we knew that Rudy uh, was not feeling well. And we were told just before we got on the bus that Rudy was being tested. And we knew that around the world this was becoming a concern. But I still think there was some, uh, some you know, maybe just not the realization that this was going to impact us, you know, us. Sure in the States. And as we got on the air, we went through our natural, you know, process of pregame and, uh, came back, uh, got through the lineups. Uh, Chris and Kenny did her uh, Taco Bell take just a couple of keys of the game. And then out of the corner of my eye, a man ran onto the, onto the floor and I'm thinking, okay, that's odd. You always don't like to see action like that on the floor, you know, Ooh, what's going on in our world today. But I thought, okay, maybe the clock is, clock is bad but i looked up in the 24 second and the 12 the 12 minute clock is running and up the floor looks good no leaks nothing the lights are on and then the delay and then the announcement that the nba had uh put the game on hold for you know health concerns and that was the tipping point to me thinking okay uh it's hit the nba did i did it didn't hit me until a minute later that it was going to be us after I just sat there and was taking care of, you know, a couple of on-air details that we realized that I realized no one told me, I just realized that in my heart of hearts, it was going to be probably a situation with Rudy. And sure enough, 
that's what what's happened. And when they took the teams off the floor, I think I, I got to praise OKC staff. Uh, and Dan, you know what I mean in the sense of just keeping the people kind of entertained down on the floor. Uh, the the gaming the game staff uh, was doing their best to announce to the crowd what was going on. They brought the uh, yell team cheerleaders back out for a few uh, routines to keep things kind of entertaining and and calm. And then the announcement came again that the league uh, had decided to suspend play. And then that's when Billy Donovan in front of me uh, and Thurl and and I remember just like it was yesterday, Quinn Snyder's reaction was a very determined get off the floor motion with his hand. And Conley was standing in front of us along with Joe Ingles and everybody made a quick turn. And I think we stayed on the air for about another minute and I sent it back to AT&T sports and just said, look, uh, if this game is played, we'll be back right now. We'll send it back to our friends at AT&T sports net. And as soon as I said that my phone, uh, I got a text that said, let's get back uh, to the locker room. And as soon as I got back there with our crew, maybe four or five minutes, um, we were put into a room and we were told that we'd be talked to momentarily. And we knew at that moment, you know, that it was it was us. Um, We did have a TV in this room and a bathroom and a water refrigerator. They had, you know, it was full of water. Another beverage would have been of much more use at <laughs> yeah. particular yeah. time. I can oh, think of a lot of them. Uh, yeah. a, a whiskey fountain. Yeah. 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 We would have had to have it refilled at least twice. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it, I think, again, I learned a lot that night about people I work with and just human nature and how stress affects and impacts everybody. And I think we all try to keep busy and help each other and, you know, answer questions and concerns and, Television really helped us because it kind of kept us in the know of what was going on uh, in the outside. Because also the NBA was making some big decisions as the night went on. And and, uh, Quinn came in later and told us, you know, that Rudy uh, was positive and make sure that we understand that we're all in this together. He was cool, calm, collected, very much a leader. And I thought he brought calm to the room. Uh, And then we just waited. And to make a long story short, we got some food and kind of were able to call our families. And we got a lot of text messages asking, really, is this happening? Yes, it is. We're involved. I'll be back with you uh, as soon as I can. And uh, then about midnight, 1230, if if my memory serves me, we were brought out for testing. Uh, The Jazz were tested, obviously, first. Uh, our crew was, came in about 1230. There was a, you know, hazmat crew there, um, which was a little surreal. You only see this in movies, right? Yeah, like totally. to us. Like, like and I think ET. that's the whole thing. Yeah, it was, it was like ET when they kind of seal <laughs> off the house. Right. Right. Um, and in reality, we just were kind of, we were, we were, you know, just walked through this process and the test was at that time a little bit more aggressive where they took, you know, the sticks into the nasal cavity and down the throat. And um, it was not pleasant. And then after everybody went through that, we went back to this room that was just to the other side uh, of the jazz locker room. I did see players and we, I did talk to Donovan, uh, walk by. He was in good spirits. Some chose to wear gloves. Others did not, you know, in masks. And we just went back. And waited, and finally, 
around 1.30, I believe, we were told that two buses were leaving for a local hotel. Uh, we took that bus and then we're told to stay inside. I think I fell asleep around 4.35 in the morning uh, after talking to, I think all of us try to help each other talk ourselves off this incredible anxiety high. Sure. And adrenaline to the point. I haven't felt that uh, maybe, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever felt it. You know, to that high of like the unknown. What will? What are? What's going to happen? Are we stuck here for two weeks? What? What actually could happen? And then, um, about eight forty-five, phone call. Um, the beautiful words of your negative. Stay tuned. More directions and instructions will come. And then we, I stayed in my room probably till eleven. And then we were escorted to this other part of this hotel, and uh, we're on a conference call with uh, health officials. And then. Several heroes from Delta actually volunteered to fly us home and two pilots that we know well and four flight attendants, two which travel with us a lot. And they say we're coming to get you. And they did. And I thank them for that. And uh, we were able to get back to Salt Lake, had a long meeting with health officials and they were very patient. They answered every question that was we could possibly think of and gave us a plan of how to handle this. And. Uh, you know, quarantining ourselves from our family and temperature checking, a proximity rule of six feet was the first time I heard that. And then we were walked out and the car keys were on a table outside the hangar and we all just reached in. And you kind of got the feeling too, guys, that no one wanted to be around us. (laughs) (laughs) I could Somehow I could figure that out. It was like, man, this is... This is how some people feel about, you know, race, color, creed, maybe, you know, stay away. Mm. Don't, don't come close. And I, wow, this is, you know, they're, they're scared right now because it's the unknown right. everybody acts differently. And so they want to stay away. And so the keys were put out and we all grabbed them. And I tell you, it was, we just looked at each other, like we're kind of now on our own. What do we do? But we just shared this incredible, you know, near 24 hour experience and, quarantined at my house and now i'm just trying to live life like everybody else but it was um it was an incredible experience with a lot of people that i i travel with and have a lot of respect for and uh it's a tight group i think you guys know the jazz you know our traveling team is about 45 and you know we know everybody and we you know we we live in the bubble as we like to say the tube and the tube is the plane, the tube is the bus, the tube is the uh, hotel, and the tube is the arena. Repeat. And it is really like Groundhog Day. Absolutely. We really, and, and we lived it. We lived it for sure. I'll uh, jump in only from the standpoint of the fact that I was absolutely blown away with the fact that uh, the recognition of Salt Lake City, the Utah Jazz slash Rudy Gobert, comes screaming over all basic networks and uh, and all of right. that. I mean, I'm looking at stuff on my phone that's bouncing around, and all of a sudden, I'm going, oh, my God. And then it suddenly occurred to me that we had been fist-bumping Rudy and Donovan their whole career. And sure. the other thing that happened was uh, that Rudy had begun to, to bend over in front of me on the table put his hands flat on the table and stretch out. And I, he, he could have been, you know, he could have been asking for some assistance and stuff. Who knows? But all of a sudden I'm remembering, I, you know, I pop out for my halftime break and I put my hands 
there constantly where his hands were. And uh, I'm going, time for a test, Dan. You better get going here. So they had uh, all the people that I, I think they got. You went into the you went into the arena when you got the next, when you got home. Did you not? Did they take you in there? Or? No, no. Once we were tested, we were done. Oh, were they you? told okay. us if you show any other signs to contact the jazz or the health department. And you know, I really am surprised, Dan, that you know, with our contact and our proximity, that thankfully nobody else tested positive. And it's really just. You know, I don't understand the disease, and uh, it, it hits upon some and not others. And, you know, it just depends, again, uh, from what I continue to understand. Uh, it's It doesn't matter if you're young, old, but also uh, what more more the people that are older with already preconditions are ob- obviously more at risk. And, you know, at that time, you're thinking healthy athletes and coaches and all these guys who do this for their livelihood. And I was thankful only, you know, two, but strangely enough, it was Donovan and Rudy and they were locker mates, Dan, right. You I know, get the that. sense of, uh, in the arena. And that really could play into the whole equation of how this, how this kind of played out. I could not get in for three days. And by the time I did, I went to St. Mark's and, um, uh, they're going, what, why are you here? What's going on? And I said, I want a test. No, you can't, you don't need a test. And I said, let me explain to you something here. And I'd had to tell them who I was and what had happened. And, you know, everybody said, okay, you've got to come in the back door here. We can't let you in the front because of possibilities. So they rammed that thing down my nose and I thought I was going to, they might be able to write my name on my back of my head without too much of a problem. (laughs) And then uh, four days later, almost five, I got a negative return. It really was the beginning of testing. And the only thing that made me mad is that I couldn't re- sue Rudy for anything. So I had to go because <laughs> I, I came out negative. And, and I suddenly, you know, with Donovan getting there, I just wasn't surprised. If you, you know, Bowler, every time there's a timeout, the two of them basically will huddle and go out arm around each other and blah, blah, blah. I didn't surprise me a bit that Donovan got, got uh, nailed just like uh, Rudy did. So, um, yeah, it's just one of those interesting, your story is really intriguing and you know what, you're right. Your proximity, that's the key word comes into play here. Right. Uh, and that's what we were told from the very beginning. Think of your proximity to the players and the coaches. And I'll be honest, you know, we're, there's a circle, you know, like a wheel with the jazz and like any organization, you know, the middle part of that, 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 that wheel is coach and players. Then the outer part would be assistant coaches, support staff. And then you got Clowkey and the training and the, you know, some of the, you know, just the equipment managers that travel with us. And then we're kind of, you know, on that third spoke, you know, that third wheel out there. And, you know, we see him, we talk, but never, never that close, even though we do share the same air that's filtrated through the airplanes and all that stuff. So it was, uh, it was really just, you get scared because you don't know. And I think a lot of people have felt that same anxiety. In fact, you know, you know, they have, because a lot of people have been uh, really upset anxiety. Um, I think the unknown is obviously human nature and to feel that way, it's almost feels good, Dan, too, guys, to say it's okay 
to feel this way yeah. because we've yeah, never been that. through it. And, and I think that's a healthy thing to say, okay, I'm human and I'm nervous and I have some anxiety and that's okay. I won't bore you with my history, but with one couple of final thoughts here, I was on my back flat with uh, something the week before. And um, I had an amazing amount of similar symptoms, but not a temperature. I didn't have a cough, but I was absolutely just flat on my back flu. And uh, they denied the fact that that could have possibly been related to anything that, it, you know, prior to that. But then I, I felt good enough to do Toronto that Monday. And the thing that blew my mind was Toronto was totally negative. Because Rudy, if remember Rudy and uh, I can't remember who their center was. It was uh, he. They they hung on each other the entire game. If uh, and and Toronto comes out negative all the way through. I was blown away with them. Yeah, yeah. Kind of tells you just how random uh, it seems to be at times. Others who barely had any contact, or uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, you know, some of the workers and the meat plants, I mean, they stand in proximity, right, for hours at a time. And, right. you know, half, half, I think the news I read today, half of one particular plant with Tyson, half of those, uh, that crew is positive. So there is something about proximity and how long you actually have um, time to, you know, to share space and the breathing, the humidity that comes out of our lungs carries the virus. And if you breathe it back in, I'm no doctor, but I guess that's the way it's transmitted. But sure. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's like the flu, but this is something we don't know about, right? It's, a, it's, it's another variation and it really does attack. And uh, obviously those that are elderly don't have the capacity, lung capacity to try to overcome it. And that's, right. uh, that's one of the biggest issues of all. Well, and, and it's, I think that uncertainty is the biggest problem that professional sports, like, you know, especially like NBA, um, NHL, those, those where you are in close proximity and just by nature, you're hanging all over you know, each other. That's just the nature of the game. And to try to figure out how to make that go forward with the uncertainty of its transmission is a, is a huge problem to have. And you just, you know, Adam Silver has an amazing task to try to figure this out where I, I read today teams are, are pushing back on even opening up practice facilities, just not because of anything that's unfair or competitiveness, but because of their fear of what that could mean to their health. This is whoever comes up with the plan and it's accepted <clears throat> is it, it will be a bold move guys, in my opinion. And you bring up a great point. I think Adam Silver wants to open because the, the NBA was the first to shut down and caused, or I guess would be the epicenter of professional sports. Really the nation. I mean, it was the nation. It was, yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it, it it set it apart. And, and on that, that's the second part of the question I had for you, Craig. Because you, how long have you been in Utah now? Oh my gosh, you're gonna age me, man. <laughs> and uh, Dan, uh, I, I was a, I was like 23, barely 23 years old when I came here in '85. Okay, so yeah, you've been around long enough to have, and I've, you know, we've lived here our whole lives, and have, you know, been avid sports fans, you know, with the Jazz and all the other sports that are here. And I, I would say that Utah has what I would call a sports <clears throat> inferiority complex or the state almost does where 
it's, we want to be recognized for good. We want to be the same as everybody else. And in that, you know, our sports fans are very passionate about that type of recognition and to be in the epicenter of Utah being the really and Rudy Gobert and the jazz getting this notoriety because of this positive test that that had to be surreal too. It was for me being, you know, a lifelong Utah to see that we're getting all this attention and, and it, this is the kind of tension we don't want to have, you know? Yeah. It, it, it was really weird. So, you know, going forward and to put all that in perspective of how the NBA moves forward, it's a monumental task. Well, then you take also the fact that um, Utah's got a comparatively lower incidence of the disease in the population than you'll find in quite a few other places. That, to me, was another well, amazing Well, we're dealing with basically 50 countries in the U.S. No, and I, we don't hear no, about that that, that yeah, often, you yeah. know, because it's every every state has its own governance. And so you can't, you know, like South Korea or India or these other places, you can't just level a, a, a national directive that says do this or, or suffer the consequences. It's each state wants its autonomy in dealing with it. So that's something else the NBA has to deal with as well, that there is no equity in how states – can can move forward with a sport that crosses all of these different borders. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting point because you know that uh, Los Angeles, California, the state of California, they made a statement about a week or two ago. They didn't even predict maybe any sports until 2021. Right. Um, I think New York is obviously still a hot point uh, with uh, the Nets and the Knicks, and then Miami. And so you have states that most likely will clear or at least the curve begins to turn down. <clears throat> but until, like you said, the, the 48, you know, you know, Continuous. here in the country, yeah. I mean, Alaska, what had Hawaii, but uh, it's, it's going to be real interesting on the, it's going to be a risk. I, I don't think you can get past that guys. I really don't. And it depends on if the risk is it how much higher would it be or how much lower could it actually become before you actually venture around to say, look, we're going to play. But I think there's going to be steps taken where it's baby steps. And I, and, and I, let me hear what you think. I mean, I, I'm I'm hearing again, and these, these have been reported, but the, the Las Vegas model, for one, being quarantined, the players and playing and no, with no fans at you know, uh, Thomas and Mac in the Cox pavilion, uh, or would you actually play with no fans at home arenas, uh, with a very limited staff? Um, I don't even know if we'd broadcast to be totally honest. It may just be some national broadcasts that come in and cause they do look, this is a financial decision too, where they want to recoup some sort of, you know, television revenue, but, do you wear a mask? Do you open up the arena early, guys, and take everyone's temperature from four o'clock? <laughs> right, and if, right. if and at, at a quarter of seven, if you haven't been tested, they close the doors and you don't co- you don't come in. Right? Uh, do they do every other row? Do you do every third chair and still regain some revenue, but not have full capacity? Whoever comes up with this plan, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how it's implemented. And then, too, I think how the fans respond. And, you know, the other part I thought about today, there may be individuals, there's more aggressive, as we know, the protesters who say, let us have our country. Let me do what I want. Right. But I think there's still a lot of individuals that are going to play 
into, no, I'm not ready. And until they are, then you just have to respect that decision. They'll venture out sooner than later. But I, I don't think you're just going to say open up and all will come. I think it's going to be little, little by little baby steps. That's how I kind of see see the formula working. But maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I, I do, that too. That may be the best way. And you can't you can't have a blanket uh, option. It, there, there is no similar possibility of similarity. And, you know, with any group event, let it be, you know, MBA or, or a wedding or a conference, you know, how will all of those transpire? Uh, that that's my day job is in meetings and events. And I have one client that has postponed all of their events and moved them exactly one year back. And, you know, these are CPAs and high-end financial people, and it's, it's like-minded through every industry. So then you start to look at, this is not only a question, and you bring up a great point, Craig, it's not only a question for this season, but going forward, how, because we, it's, it's how we were retrained to travel after 9-11. Now it's, our society has to be retrained on how to interact with people. And not, you know, not just with sports, but just in general of going to the restaurants and going out and, you know, seeing people in stores. It's just, you know, that they have one way aisles in Smith's now, you know, in grocery stores, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty (laughs) surreal. So, you know, to answer your question, I think the only way that the NBA can continue and maybe any sport that has the, the five on five model or the, where it's in close and it's not like golf or tennis, I think, has an advantage. They have to play in one location, in my opinion. And they also, I think, with the success in of the, the Michael Jordan documentary, you know, that the just came out, you know, ESPN has set records of how many people have watched that. I think that that sets a precedence for how the NBA and the teams will try to recoup revenue. That's the only way I can see that happening in the current state it could be it could be the answer is at least put the product on the floor and i'm the other part of that is too i wonder how the players respond and who feels comfortable enough to actually venture back out amongst themselves i'm sure some pretty high level testing would have to take place as well uh, during if that actually does come to fruition guys uh, i think there's a lot of fear even though if you may be a incredibly incredibly talented and high-tuned athlete uh they still have family uh they still have moms and dads and they have children uh and i think that still plays in their minds that i may be high a high level athlete i'm very well paid but you know what in the long run um we're all still human and i I know that we kind of forget that sometimes but that puts us all on the same level playing field and I think we're all beginning to understand that now more than ever. I read an article in ESPN um, just yesterday, or I think it was, but there was speculation <laughs> of trying to create a champion, and I use the word loosely because of the way the season has been, you know, just run downhill. But they wanted to get all the teams, just like Jerem was saying, in one spot, and they would take the top seven teams in each uh, division – 
and then have a uh, tournament. And they were talking about someplace in Florida, which is bizarre because of the beaches and stuff. But um, that was one thing. This is total speculation, but it was, again, predicated on one spot. And then all of the teams would be sequestered and cared for on a separate basis. It really sounds, I mean, uh, the speculation and the, the, uh, uh, the problematic <laughs> one after the other of, of, of situations arising to me sounds impossible. I can't even begin to imagine how they could even pull that off. It'd be difficult because you have to have a lot of eyeballs uh, on a lot of people and to make sure there's no gap, Dan, in that plan. You know, there's no <clears throat> loophole where one individual would break curfew potentially. And does that, what would you say that would basically the quarantine then would, they'd have to redo it again. Right. Superstars uh, treatment would, goes out the window. You know, yeah. You know. Yeah. So everybody's got to be on board. And I, I just don't know. I, I think, as we said before, I think this month, the, here it is May 1st. And I think by June one, I think we'll have more answers. I hope we do uh, concerning the curve concerning people venturing out and understanding more about, you know, where we are and where this is going. And maybe the plans that we're talking about now become a little bit more clear. Cause I guarantee you there's plan a through Z <laughs> on how to handle this. And even maybe there's no more alphabet, right. But maybe Z one, two, three, and four, <laughs> you know, I think you're, right. you're, I think you're totally someone's going to have to, someone is going to have to be the bold individual or organization or, uh, you know, league to say, we're going to try and do this. But I think, I think too, they have to be cautious and understanding that if it isn't going the way they planned, they, they may have, they will have to pull back and rethink it. I just don't think there's a real easy answer to any of this. So, okay, let's, let's, let's pivot and, and maybe, you know, talk about something a little more lighthearted because when we, uh, when, when we, when we formulated our show, uh, Voices Behind the Game, Craig, you were one of the voices that we thought about, uh, not only because you have the, uh, the the rare distinction of having a voice that's, uh, as my dad would say, almost as deep as his, because he, <laughs> he considers his voice the deepest and the strongest. You know? Oh, he is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, Dan, Dan's got the tone, man. That's Dan's right. got the tone. Uh, you're kind to say that, Bowler. <laughs> Very he, true. Very he, true. He, he, uh, I, I've actually filled in for him about eight times, Craig, and... Uh, First time I did, I I tried to make it sound exactly like like he did, and I, right. I fooled a lot of people. Uh, but uh, it's still never you can never uh, truly impersonate Dan Roberts. It's just not possible. So, but so you, you came here in 1985, and Utah was a vastly different place back then. So yes, yes. From your perspective of coming to Utah, um, and and of all you know, you you have a, a really unique perspective not only as a resident, but as, you know, being involved with TV and sports and all the things that you've seen, try to, try to put that, uh, give our listeners a little bit of a picture of what it was like coming into Utah and how you've seen it change over the years. Oh man, this, this is a great question. Um, when I got here in 85, I'm a Missouri born Kansas city raised individual. And, you know, a lot of people said, look, you're going out you know, again, to the land of the, to the Mormons. And I didn't really know much about the LDS faith, but I was going to work for KSL television, which was owned by the church. And I was kind of really 
at that time in 85 and Dan, I think you can probably, you know, uh, probably agree or disagree, but I think you would agree that I was kind of a new kid on the block in the sense of a non LDS individual working in a pretty dominant, uh, station and state with, you know, a high level of LDS population. So I think a lot of people found me to, well, you're, you're a church member. And I said, no, I'm, I'm actually, uh, Methodist Baptist grew up in the Midwest and, uh, down South, my grandparents, I have two uh, uncles and a grand grandparent who's a Christian minister. And they were like, Oh my, right. And, you know, <laughs> it, and, and it's really interesting how that's changed. Uh, 85 seems it is a long time ago and really things have changed a lot. The growth acceptance, I believe that the Olympics, uh, made a big impact on this state and the region where the world was welcomed. And I think people had to start to understand that to be on the big stage that I think Salt Lake really wanted to be to your earlier question is that they wanted to be a player. They wanted the respect. They wanted to be known as a world-class destination. And I was here for that. Uh, I had left KSL to go to CBS prior to the O2 Olympics. It was 98. Uh, they gave, I think the announcement in 97. And so I was here for that. And you could just tell the pride of, of Salt Lake and beyond. Was it Samaranch who said the city of Salt, oh, Salt Lake, Lake yeah. <laughs> it was. And, and it was again, like, come on, man, can't you get <laughs> it? And, and that was like, okay, somebody, they're going to get it sooner than later. It's Salt Lake city, Utah. Right. <laughs> And but the process, I think, began there, guys. I really do. I, I, I think that people around the country got a different sense. Uh, people traveled in from Arizona and California and, you know, obviously the international uh, flair for skiing and Park City was a and Deer Valley destinations. And then the building of the Olympic venues was was incredible. And that brought more international um, I think exposure and, you know, when I when I, I still lived here, but I was working uh, back and forth in New York and then back and forth at, you know, different are, you know, arenas and stadiums. But I always got asked that question, silly questions, un, I think uneducated questions about what really was Utah. Well, you know, one that's always made me chuckle when I was in Oklahoma City doing a football game. I think it was Oklahoma State and we had come down for dinner out of uh, Stillwater, and a uh, guy saw I had a Utah, I don't know if I had a jazz hat on, I may have, or, or something, and he goes, hey, hey, uh, are you from Utah? I said, yeah, I live out there. He goes, hey, is it true? Uh, you have three or four wives each? <laughs> and, and, and I thought, for, I'm just going to play along with this guy, because I'm thinking, is he really serious? Is he pulling my leg? But I got a sense that he really, really, truly believed that everyone who lived in Utah, male, would have at least three to four wives. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I think maybe, you know, maybe five. And, and then I just looked at him and said, sir, sir, I'm just kidding you. Uh, no. And he goes, well, that's what I hear. I said, well, sir, you need to read up a little bit more. Polygamy uh, has been out of the equation, except in some small pockets. <clears throat> was it Colorado City or yeah, something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. asto- he was astonished. Really? To know that we weren't, you know, running around in wagons and 
it, it was really amazing. And I, I thought to myself, you know, we've got a long ways to go, but I think we've come a long way. Uh, and I really feel like this is home. I love the Midwest. I love Missouri. Uh, but I really kind of grew up here now, honestly, from a young man to here I am today, my wife, my three sons, um, all born here, met, met Sharon here. <clears throat> and I really thought I'd stay a year and I'd be gone because my goal at, at the time was always to go back to Kansas City and try to land a, a sports job there and cover the Chiefs and the Royals. And I'd been in Wichita and Topeka, and I, I just really wanted to go back and, and cover um, you know, the National Football League and Major League Baseball. But it didn't work out that way. But, uh, you know, I've enjoyed every minute. There's been some struggles, ups and downs, and just adjusting. Uh, and I, sometimes I get angry because I feel like I'm part of the community and I don't like to hear the negativity that comes with it sometimes. And so I try to, <clears throat> when I'm on the road and people ask these silly questions, I try to make sure they get at least a strong, straight answer. Uh, but I think it's changed, and here we are, two, 2020. Yeah. Uh, how about that? 2020, and the Olympics are coming back. And I think that only draws more interest back to this state and puts, I think, uh, a lot of misnomers to bed. Uh, at least that's that's my hope. I had one experience during the course of that, uh, that uh, of the Winter Games. And like you, Bowler, I'm not LDS, nor is my sweet son and – there was an announcement of the then president of the church. I cannot remember his name to save my butt. It might have been Hinckley. Let's let's say it probably was at that point. Probably was Hinckley. Yeah, I think it was Hinckley. Yeah. Okay, but he said the world is welcome here for the two week period, and you can get a drink. I mean, he was recorded. <laughs> yes. He was recorded live and he authorized they opened up all the bars for, you know, time and all eternity. That's which <laughs> is what they needed to do. Right. But it was amazing. And I thought that's a that's a hell of a move. And that's that it was amazing that especially the president of the church allowed that to go down. I thought that was pretty right. cool. Well I, I think you that, know and oh go ahead, Craig. Go ahead. I was just going to say in Lillehammer, Norway, uh, in 94, when we were there, that was the biggest concern for, I think, <clears throat> the uh, Salt Lake contingent was um, how will we handle uh, the European desire to drink alcohol and also the hours of their of the difference. Remember, I mean, they're going to cover the Olympics at a much different time. I was doing live shots at 3 a.m. And, of course, here in the States, just flip it back to the European time right, frame. Right. And they would be up working late. Uh, and so they would be expecting to have a cocktail or two themselves, wine, whatever it may be. It's interesting, isn't it, that alcohol, wine, whatever your choice may be, but internationally when you travel, it's, it's not even a, a point of discussion. No. And, but here it was a big thing that the, I think the church and obviously, uh, you know, Olympic officials had to discuss and try to work out, which they did. And Very well. I, I don't think there was I don't think there was that many complaints actually no. from uh, the European nations who came here <clears throat> to celebrate the Olympics. I, th I think they enjoyed it. And, you know, um, my dad and I went to a hockey game in Provo. It was, uh, I think, uh, uh, Belarus. No, no, not Belarus. It was uh, Russia and Czechoslovakia. And, uh, you know, Javi, uh, um, Javi Bulin, 
and uh, Dominic Hasek, these two iconic goalies. And, you know, it was an incredible game. I actually played hockey growing up. I love watching Olympic hockey. It's just the ultimate in competition. That rink is bigger. That It's a more open game. And, and you know, it's pure. And it's just pure. It's just pure hockey. And, you know, during the game down in Provo, and if you've grown up, you know, in, in, in Utah, you, you understand this. And, and like you, Craig, people would always ask me growing up, you know, I can't believe you're not LDS. You know, you're clean yeah. cut, you're respectful, and it's, it's a really weird thing that you only experience here. You know, it's kind of, it's a weird, I don't want to call it racism, but it's definitely a judgment type of thing that you have to, you know, learn how to deal with and, in just respect in, in different ways. But when we were at that hockey game, we both had a beer and we kind of looked at each other and we're having a beer at a hockey game <laughs> in Provo, in Provo. <laughs> you know, and, and it was just like, wow. Olympic hockey game Olympic too. Hockey, yeah. In, in, yeah. In Provo, no one's looking at us and it's like, yeah, Wow, this th- that was the moment for me where Utah did change and it did yeah. take this step that you know now puts us in in different light and you've seen you know, the city change so much and it but it's you know in in like what you said when you go on the road today you still get that uh, you still you know especially after the Russell Westbrook incident you you really still get a lot of judgment calls on what Utah is and isn't as a as a community and I think once people visit here. I think they get a totally different perspective and that's why it's great to have people visit this state. Uh, It's great to see, you know, visitors in the stands, Dan at the arena and obviously up at the the resorts, I just think it's good for people to visit and really understand the culture, appreciate the past and the culture, you know, and, and the temple square is a beautiful place. It's a, it's part of history. It's a, it's part of, you know, what this state and, and the whole uh, religion is based upon. And I think you get a better understanding of why and how, you know, uh, Brigham Young and the Mormon community ended ended up here and made this their own. Once you kind of understand that, which I had to go through that all, my that education process myself back in 85. And I think I got a pretty quick lesson working at KSL. There were For a lot sure. of people that were willing to kind of give me the insight and the information to, to, and take, transformation to too, com- I'd add to that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and to make me feel comfortable because they wanted me to you know, get who they were, and they asked me questions about where I came from. So we shared a lot of different thoughts, and I thought that was good. They were open to ideas and different ways of life, and I, I found that refreshing, and I appreciated that. I was there for 13 years, and I saw KSL change too, guys. I mean, from 85 to 98. Uh, before I left uh, to go to CBS and uh, that station and everyone in it, you know, I think just grew, grew with the city as well. And, you know, I think journalism's changed drastically over the last few years. You know, as you remember guys, you know, the Dick Norris's and the Bruce Lindsay's of the world and the Ed Yates, the <laughs> right. John Holland horse. <laughs> I mean, we had some great journalists there who dug deep for big stories. And I remember Ed Yates one did a special called not when, not if, but when, and it scared the hell out of me. It was about the big one. And you know, the Wasatch front. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and all of a sudden, <laughs> what do we, what do you know? In the last two months, we've had multiple earth, an earthquake <laughs> and multiple tremor tremors. And our, our, I always remember Ed doing such an incredible job explaining, you know, what the Wasatch front and where we live and what would happen in case of a major earthquake. And I don't know why that always stayed with me, but in the Midwest, all we thought about people asked me about tornadoes and I'd seen, I had 
seen two, and they wanted me to know about that. And I kept asking, well, what about an earthquake here, man? Tell me about that. <laughs> so, you know, we uh, And we it's funny, we had stories. a tornado here that uh, took the top yeah, off the right. arena, too. <laughs> So it's crazy? It, it all yeah. works. It all works out, man. Everybody, it's, everybody was following you when that happened, right? Exactly. Craig? You're like, hey, where's Craig going? Let's, <laughs> there's a tornado. What's he doing? <laughs> yeah. So with with your uh, background, Craig, because you you've done college football, you've done NFL nationally. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about that, and then also, uh, you know, since this is always a burning question, put into perspective for our listeners the Utah BYU rivalry rivalry as you see it versus other rivalries that you've seen throughout your career. Yeah. Been asked this quite a few times. I I was able to live it for 10 years. Um, (laughs) I really had a, a a real quick, you know, kind of, I guess it's just kind of a little history of my, of my 10 years calling BYU. Um, You know, when I, when I got here, Nance, Jim Nance, who's been at CBS great forever. Uh, left about four months after I got here. And I remember getting called into the office saying, look, Jim's leaving in uh, or late September. Uh, we're going to have you piggyback a couple of games with Jim and do BYU football as soon as he leaves. And I thought, oh, my God, uh, right. opportunity, opportunity that you just, you know, wait for in a career. I'd done radio football and basketball, and I had done television indoor soccer in Wichita, Kansas with the Wichita wings. So this is the, really the first great opportunity for me to, you know, get into a booth and call a major college, uh, game. And they had just won the 1984 national championship. So they were big. I mean, they were on, they were on the radar. Absolutely. Uh, again, and Lavelle Edwards, uh, his name was some synonymous, uh, you know, with college football at that time too. And, there were QBU um, at you that know, point. With, I mean, with they, Bo yeah. Schembechler, you know, yeah. and all those, you know, there was just a, a handful of guys that people would say, oh, yeah, 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 Lavelle. Yeah, I got a lot of respect for him. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, when I when I started that, uh, I did 10 years of, of football. And I think Dan will remember this as well, is that that was a time when local television still had the ability to own the rights to a college football program. Um, and mm. KSL did ESPN was in its birth. It was in its infancy at that time. And they were building their own reputation slowly, but they would grab one game. It was always BYU San Diego state. Cause they were both the highest scoring teams in the WAC. <laughs> and it was always one of the most entertaining games of, of the year. And so I did about 10 or 11 of the 12 games and had a multitude of different analysts. The, the late, great Chris Tunis joined me. Mark Lyons came over for a while. Um, you know, it, it just went on and on. Guys that would come in and, and get Wilson and I, the former BYU quarterback, um, came in and did uh, several years with me. Um, and it, it was really interesting because um, when I left and went to ESPN to start to call games and I actually called some Utah games and people didn't really like me because I had called BYU. And so I got a flavor of red and blue and working at KSL, there was always that, you know, you, you know, well, you're either one way or the other. You could never be, <laughs> you never could be both. Oh my goodness. No way. And I, and I, you know, as a journalist and that, I, I think people I hope they understand. I I'm old school. 
And so I was taught and educated in a very old school way back in the late 80s um, and early 80s, I mean, when I got out. And, you know, the word was facts, uh, facts first, let the fan or your story let them to determine the outcome. And so I always try to give both sides. I always have tried to give both sides of the story, including now with the jazz. I, I can't, I can't ignore Utah. I can't ignore uh, the Celtics. I can't ignore the Oklahoma city thunder because as a fan, you're watching the same game as I am. So some fans would be upset that I would even give any, you know, any, any knowledge <laughs> that Utah even existed <laughs> during the course of a game especially when Scott Mitchell was quarterback and, and slinging the, 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 uh, the football around. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, again, I won't name the individual, but there were some who were concerned that I wasn't of the faith and that I couldn't actually call a good game because I didn't understand, <laughs> uh, the culture. And I found that offensive Sure. personally, but also a motivator because I wanted to go out and actually do the best job. And I really honed my skills in those 10 years, uh, calling football. And then I got the chance to call Detmers, you know, run to the Heisman, which is just one of my highlights and one of the great individuals I've ever come around. He was a, a young, tough guy who just had the command and the huddle with that Southern Texas draw. He had a bunch of characters that he played with. In fact, there was a lot of good interesting personalities on those old BYU teams. Um, social media was not what it is. There was no social media. No, there was not Bill Edwards was the final word, you know, on what was going down at BYU. So, you know, the Jason Bucks, the Sean Knights, uh, the Lockehe Mooleys, the Andy Voices, the Chad Lewis's, uh, the Bellinis. I mean, wow. There were some really incredible athletes. Um, and uh, then when I switched over, I really start to understand uh, the passion of the red and the blue. And you know what? I think you guys probably would both agree. It, it really formulates itself on family, whether you went to Utah or BYU. Absolutely. Or it formulates itself on if you drink or not. Yep. And then it formulates <laughs> if you're LDS or not. Absolutely. Yeah. And totally. so thus the holy war. And I hate to see it called that because, you know, look, it's religion. Everybody has their own choice and they make those. But, man, uh, I think in the 80s up into the mid-90s and into early 2000s, until Mac and Lavelle started to form that bond right? and they made those commercials, I think there were people that were appalled that those two guys were even friends. I, I agree. And I, I think that was the changing point about the time that I left – and went to ESPN, then on to CBS. I I, I kind of left behind, you know. I hope a little better uh, relationship because Lavelle and Mac got it. And yeah. They knew that they both wanted good programs. It was good for the state of Utah that both teams would be competitive. And you know what? I think it's been a good transition from that point on. But, but <clears throat> pardon me that family red blue is always one you chase because the wife may be a cougar and the husband may be a youth or brother, sister, you know, I don't think that's ever going to change, but I think also what's changing is the fact that BYU is an independent money plays a factor. Utah is in, is, is a P five PAC 12 and they have their own agenda. And you just hope that the, 
both schools, both athletic directors, because I think for the state, the rivalry has to stay. Oh, no if question. Dies, Absolutely. If it dies, it's it, I think it's detrimental to to college football because it is really a true rivalry in this country. And I hope it doesn't go away. My uh, one BYU story basically involves uh, the fact that uh, they had uh, started scheduling games at the arena and uh, they wanted me to be part of that. And I said, I've got two things to ask of you, please. Number one, you pay me exactly what I want. Number two, I don't say the opening prayer. <laughs> they all laughed, but I'm 13 and 0 in the arena. And uh, wow. I'm, I'm sure wow. that somebody's probably baptized me without me knowing it just because yeah. of the fact that I'm undefeated. But it's oh, the, they're funny. all great yeah. people. They're incredibly nice people. I mean, um, is it Homo that he's the AD? Is that is that whom I think it is? Tom Homo, Tom Homo yeah. yeah, yeah. Very. He yeah. always comes by and said hi. Was it, he said hi? What is it, Dan? Isn't it? And he said yes, sir. It is. Thank you. And he'd shake my hand. And all of the regular people, you know, the athletic department people are very very cordial. And it's it's been kind of fun. And I do all I can. The hardest game I had to deal with was uh, BYU Utah on the just uh, a couple of months ago and. BYU beat the crap out of them. I think that uh, was not a that was not a fun game to watch. But I had to pretend like I cared about it. You know, it was <laughs> yeah, really... absolutely. <laughs> well, I'd say BYU basketball, BYU or Utah basketball, up, down, sideways, and it right. kind of you know it's it's cyclical. One year, two years, three years of high level, and then it have to be a rebuild. And BYU's had some incredible young talent through the days. You know, I was there. On when Roger Reed uh, took over for um, Liddell Anderson and, you know, the, the Reed brothers, uh, Gary Trost, uh, Kevin Nixon, Bobby Kavner, the blonde-headed bomber. Right. I mean, just, there was a lot of, you know, in Utah, you know, had um, had players of the Van Horns and Doliaks. Come on. I mean, you know, Andre Miller, Andre look, Miller. those are all NBA-level players. Yeah. And, and it's, it's – I again, I'm one – and I hope fans, most fans, I think, do understand that um, the competition is good. I'd rather see a buzzer beater bucket. And if BYU wins or Utah wins, so be it. Because all it does is make the rivalry even stronger. And the recruiting in-state and out-of-state makes it even better, too. And uh, you hope that Utah regains some status. BYU right now you know, has been able to put in some pretty and you know pretty talented players and they were off to you know a heck of a year sadly you know no no march madness right and <laughs> that to me was a heartbreaker man. that was very yeah, very was, much that was that i, I did mean, uh, that was tough i did 12 seasons of uh, march madness for cbs and there's nothing better of thinking that one on that one moment you're cinderella and uh, that's that's the beauty of uh, playing in March. Well, no, no, we're uh, running up against uh, our time, Craig. And, and uh, first of all, uh, we would love to have you back. There's a lot of stuff that we would love to get into. And so we'll oh, yeah, talk to you yeah. for a week, yeah. Bolo Jack. That would so be you too guys hard really to do. think I'm busy, right? That's right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, Gotta... you want to do it later tonight or what? <laughs> after dinner? How's Anytime. that? Anytime. I'd love to chat. Well, you know, it's good. It's good. It's good medicine. You know, it, it's really good to kind of relive what was and where we're going and i it really for me it's therapy and i appreciate the time with you guys man absolutely well uh, as we uh, as we trail off here i was gonna have uh, you and my dad kind of riff for 
maybe just one or two minutes on uh, on the Jazz, since you guys have the unique uh, commonality of uh, being around the Jazz since the mid '80s. So, if uh, you each oh. with, with one uh, one thought, one little thought before uh, before we trail off here on uh, something endearing that you've each experienced with the old school Jazz. Oh my goodness, Dan! We've got great stories. I know um, we could probably last another couple of hours without too much. Oh, of a <laughs> oh my goodness! You know, I th- I think for me, uh, I came to town the same week that Carl Malone was drafted, and for some reason, he and I had, uh, and I still talk to him, and he still texts me when he's up in a deer blind out of nowhere, <laughs> just to see what's going on. But, you know, I, I just built an interesting relationship. And in journalism, you really don't do that. Um, you try to always be professional. At least that was what was my, you know, journalism 101 always told me, look, sources and, you know, relationships, you know, keep a hand's distance. But, you know, but for some reason, Carl and I, I just was drawn to this guy. Um, he intrigued me. He had a life that intrigued me. And he opened up to me. I don't know why, but I still have that connection to, to Carl. John was, of course, his, his running mate. And John was, Dan can attest to this, total polar opposite of needs. John's the assassin. John did not need a camera in his face. Carl did. Carl liked the camera. The camera liked him. In the interview, he liked to talk. He wanted people to know where he was from and why he was Carl Malone and John just wanted to play basketball and nothing else seemed to matter. And I just thought the two were able, um, were the perfect match. And people are asking now, you know, like Boozer and Williams, um, you know, how did the, you know, why didn't it all work for a longer period of time? And why is it so difficult to find that one, two combo? Well, because they were polar opposites, but had great respect for each other. Right. And Dan, You couldn't say stock without Malone. Nope. And Malone knew he couldn't survive without John and John needed Carl. And that's the beauty of that relationship. But they also didn't have the same needs. And I think as we get into a lot of stories around the league and around the NFL, you know, with social media and the money and the cameras and the accolades and the shoe contracts, all the above, it it, it can splinter relationships. And for some reason, Carl and John survived it. And I think I applaud them for that because it just doesn't happen enough in in the world of sports today. I couldn't agree more. I'd have to go basically a little bit bigger picture because I was there opening night in the Salt Palace playing the Milwaukee Bucks. There was just shy of 7,800 people there and the Bucks beat the crap out of us. And I remember Ben Poquette, Alan Bristow, um, AD was uh, there and... uh, Booney was not there just yet, but from there, through of the times that we grew up to our first conference title, which was 84, as I recall, somewhere in there, right? with um, with Frank coaching, and then all of a sudden, I remember when he handed the, the keys to Jerry, I'll never forget that, because Jerry walked out in the spotlight, and he hated every minute of it, but he took yeah. the accolades <laughs> right off the bat. Yeah. And yeah. then the All-Star game, um, I, <laughs> I put up with uh, NBC telling me what to do. The playoffs were amazing because uh, I got a chance to be introduced to Worldwide and, uh, and, and do the introductions and stuff. I go the whole, the, the evolution of the jazz when Frank said, "What? come on down, what time do you want us to start playing? We need some people here. <laughs> 
I'll never forget Man, that. That's one of the greatest lines of all time. And Frank and his <laughs> Frank voice. Hey, what time can you be here? Yeah, you know? Exactly. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's an amazing line, but you know what? It was true. I mean, he would have done it how, too. I'll guarantee you. Oh, but you know what, Dan, you make up a great point. You, you just gave a quick, you know, history of the jazz, but you know what? You also were there when it was very precarious that it wasn't going to happen again. That, oh, exactly. You know, if it wasn't for Dominique Wilkins and the million bucks. They wouldn't have made payroll, and the Jazz would probably be – where were they supposedly going? I think going? it was Minnesota. Was it? I think it was uh, – Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota yeah. was the intended yep. uh, final destination. I remember – And when I got – when I got here in 85, remember, that's when Larry, you know, made the bold move. I yeah. mean, it was unbelievable. I thought, who's Larry Miller? Well, he's going to have a press conference at 5 o'clock, and he's going to buy. What was it? Uh, Twenty? Was he going to put 12 he put, million uh, 12 down million on a down, $20 yeah. million yeah, dollar put, buy? Yeah, yeah, precisely. And then, he, and then he, he bought the rest the second later, year, yeah. And I think Larry beat the deadline by 10 minutes, and the story goes, I think he got the last second loan – from Zion or another bank to make that deal happen. Think about it, guys. What if that hadn't it happened? Wow. What if that day had not happened and Larry didn't step up, the Miller family? Where would we be in the sense of sports in, in Salt Lake? It really I don't think the Olympics would have been here. Uh, yeah. I don't know. We wouldn't have qualified book. for a G League team, I don't think. <laughs> no, no. I don't know if somebody else would have stuck their nose and maybe tried to invest, but – that that changed it all you know it really did i think for just the, the as you we talked earlier about the relationship of larry and uh, the city and the way it grew and the chance he took oh man i don't know if we could if somebody else could pull that off today i really no. don't kahuna's with a k by golly <laughs> you are spot on my man yeah well uh it's been an absolute pleasure craig uh we really appreciate you joining and uh you definitely will uh, will do this again for sure. Yeah, uh, I'm up for part two. <laughs> Nicole, you're here, yeah, Holder. I love you, dearly. You take care. Thanks, guys. Be safe. All right, you, you too. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.